So we have effectively now concluded the, the May Day series. So we do, we do spend um, considerable amount of time, well, once a month, well, basically once a, once a month, once a year for a month, we go through uh, prophecy and we, we speak about what the Bible teaches with regards to the things that are, that are happening in the world today and how they align so well with, um, with what the Bible teaches will be in these days, which is quite incredible. It's quite incredible. A quarter of the Bible, at least, is focused on prophecy, and it, we do a disservice when we uh, when we don't touch any of it, uh, simply because sometimes because of the content, sometimes because of the perceived confusion uh, that a lot of people think is found in there. But it's not. If you read the Bible through and you read the Bible through regularly, you'll find that the Bible is pretty clear when it comes to speaking about those the signs of the times, what, what Jesus spoke about. We are back in the book of Romans. So we find ourselves back there. We have concluded um, pretty much every chapter right up until the end of chapter 12. We concluded the last verse of, of, of chapter 12. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's where we finished. That's where we finished. We finished our study at that point and then we took up the May Day series from that time. We are now beginning a new chapter, chapter 13. So if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, we're going to be reading from verses 1 to, to 7. Verses 1 to 7, chapter 13. Oh, sorry, I've got to put my recording on, just in case. So we've got the backup. Okay, Romans chapter 13, and we'll take our reading from verses 1 to 7. Paul writes, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. For whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the, of the power? Do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must, wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. A passage in the Bible that uh, we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. This week we're going to be con concentrating on the first verse and, um, and that's where we're, we're, going to be, we're going to be taking the... Uh, the study. We're not going to be doing seven sermons on it because there's some natural breaks within the text that can bring us an understanding to what's here. Let's. Uh, I just want to open a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, that you would um, be with me, Lord, also as I preach this word and be with those who would hear. And I pray, Father, that this word would would in every way encourage our hearts and and bring us understanding. Thank you in Jesus' name. The night that Jesus was, was betrayed, 
and the soldiers and the soldiers came uh, the time that he was praying in the garden of gethsemane and judas came with the soldiers also and they came with with swords and with staves and they came to take jesus and and it was at that time that that peter rose up and he he smote one of the soldiers and injured him and and jesus healed that soldier the soldier's name was malthus interestingly enough we have we have his name in the bible um jesus immediately after he he healed the soldier he he turned to peter and he said this put up again thy sword into his place for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword thinkest thou not uh, thinkest thou that i cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels jesus christ our lord god the god of heaven and earth who could command the entire army of heaven submitted himself to the ruling authorities of the time Um, and he was faithful to god unto death even even the death of the cross Today, I witness the behavior of many of Jesus' disciples, um, children who are called by his name and are saved also through his blood, that if they had the charge of a legion of angels, they almost seem to me that they would not hesitate to employ them in rebellion against our government. And this is something that we need to consider within our own hearts. I mean, if we had that power and we had that ability, would we employ it or would we, or would we submit? The disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. And, 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 and this is something that we need to be considering because, you know, I recognise that this is a, a difficult time, a, a time that is sorrowful to a lot of people. And there is a reasonable amount of anguish with regards to what's going on and I'm not, I'm not short of this. I'm not short of this, and I have to admit to you that I, I would I would truly have been probably one of those disciples. I would have been one that, um, if I had the command of a legion of angels, I, you know, I probably would have employed them. Um, and I and I'm, I guess I'm admitting to you a real shortcoming, and a, and a genuine shortcoming, and certainly one that had to be dealt with, and it had to be dealt with this week. So I didn't have a choice when it came to what I was going to be preaching from this week. We, we, we finished the May Day series. The Lord had laid nothing else on my heart to, to continue to preach on but to go back to the book of Romans. And, and we concluded at verse 12, and I hoped, I truly hoped that we, uh, at chapter 12, and I, and I truly hoped that there was still a little verse left at the end of chapter 12 that I could preach on this week before I came to Romans chapter 13 and the first verse. I spent the week listening to and seeing many Senate hearings, news conferences, uh, questions in chambers, uh, reading news articles, and I did so to an extent that I haven't done for a long, long time because I usually determine to switch off, especially local news. Um, especially through the mainstream. But I decided this week I'm going to submit myself to this. And, um, and I needed to do so because I needed, to, I needed something that would be able to help me to understand this passage properly. 
I needed something that would help me to be able to submit to the authority of what is actually spoken of in the Word of God to be able to preach to you in sincerity those things that are found within the Scriptures. Um, you know, they often say that a Bible, uh, that a pastor needs to be changed through his own sermon before he hopes to change others. And, um, and this week's grievous effort did uh, indeed help, help me in that regard. What it did was it, it gave me a complete and total despondency of trusting government to better my life. And it's really strange because we often don't think that that's what we're doing, but when we're, we're looking to government, we're looking to the government and the decisions of government that we think are going to somehow transform and better our lives. And though they can have an impact upon the way of living our life, they are not that which stands before us being able to obey and trust in the Lord and, 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 and be able to live our lives. So as difficult as that was, the unmooring of my confidence, the confidence, whatever confidence I ever had in government, the unmooring of that had essentially found me casting my anchor completely on the rock. And that rock is, is my Lord and to trust in God rather than hope in man. I, I've, never, I've never seen a time in history where, for me, the, the words of Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9 stand out more, uh, more now than ever. And simply says this, it says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Jesus, who is my Lord, in his willingness to submit himself as he did, though having all the power of, of heaven at his disposal, leaves me without any argument. And I pray it has indeed prepared me for, for, this, for this sermon and to preach it in sincerity. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Times like that we're living in that we often find ourselves thinking that God has somehow left the building that he's no longer in control of that which is before us and that it's now, uh, it's now incumbent upon us to retake the kingdom for God's sake. Uh, but nothing can be further from the truth. The title of the sermon this morning is God is still on the throne. And contrary to how we often might feel, he is indeed still on the throne. God is in control of all things that are, that are occurring within the world at the moment. And we see in the study of this passage that all the powers that be are actually in subjection to the throne of God. One, several things we're going to be considering as we go through the elements this morning. Um, several things that we need to be trusting in. And the first is that we are, number one, to submit ourselves to any and all governments to which we live. And secondly, that they are put in place directly by God. Thirdly, that they are given their powers directly of God. And fourthly, that God is in control. And in doing this, we're going to also dispel a certain amount of myths. Myth number one, that we are to obey everything commanded us by governments. 
Myth number two, that God approves of all things governments do. Myth number three, that God has no purpose for government. And myth number four, that God has no power to work his work through governments. And with those several items now given you, the thrust of the sermon today to encourage, is to encourage you that God is still on the throne. So the first point this morning is the universal command through the throne of God. And it's found in the first few words of that first verse. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Let every soul be subject. The inclusion of the words every soul is simply a, what's known as a Hebraism, which refers to every man, every person. Every person, we see it in Acts 2.43, in Acts uh, 3.23 and in Romans 2.9 and it's utilised in the same way that it's utilised here. It speaks about every man, every person. The text speaks simply to the universality of the command through the throne of God. Every person and more particularly respecting um, those who are being addressed by this letter, every Christian is to be subject to higher powers. They are to be in submission to higher powers. These powers are those that have the rule over us. Um, some we've elected. Uh, some are despots and dictators. We haven't elected. Some have a just rule and governance and it's limited to a constitutional framework. Some are evil dictators that have no rule governing them but that of their own will. That's all that they hold on to. There is no distinction in the text and there is no distinction in the Bible. Every soul is to be subject unto the higher powers, whether they be just and good or whether they simply be evil. There is no, there's nowhere in the Bible where it commands anything otherwise. We are to obey government and it doesn't matter who they are or what they are. Whether they align to your own personal philosophies, whether they have your same ideologies, whether you don't, you don't have a right to withhold taxes from them, to pay of those taxes. Jesus was the one that made it clear, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God. We are to trust that God is the one who is on the throne and still on the throne. The Bible teaches something interesting and I want to go through a little bit of history with regards to the ancient, ancient Jews. Firstly, that they were a peculiar people, that they were chosen out of the nations of the world to be God's very own possession. God had chosen them because that was what God's desire was to do. God is on the throne and not man. He chose them and he chose them for his purpose and his purpose only. He didn't choose them because they were a great people. That's really important to understand. Nor did he choose them because they were any, there was anything special about them. He chose them based on his will and his will alone. It's God that sits on the throne. But what was given to the Jews, what was given to the Jews was something that was never ever seen in the world before. It was given to them at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, they were written by the finger of God upon tables of stone written on the, on the front and on the backside. And that is the law of God, what's known as the, the Ten Commandments. When Paul asked the rhetorical question in, in Romans chapter 3, saying, what advantage then hath the Jew? He answered the question. He gave one answer that was the solitary 
advantage, the greatest advantage of all that was given to the Jews. And he, and he answers that in verse 2. He says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. This is the law of God. This is what was given directly to the nation via the throne of God, through God himself. Now, naturally, Israel had seen their laws above anything the nations of the world could even hope to be governed by. Um, and, and really, they were right. They were right because in the, in, the, in the ancient cultures of the time, there were no such laws. There were no such just laws and decrees. There were individuals who would teach that uh, the Code of Hammurabi, who was a Babylonian king, the, what's known as there's 282 rules in that code, uh, that they were the governing principles of the nation and they actually preceded, um, they preceded Moses receiving the law from Sinai. Uh, but there's no, there's no, there's no critical, credible historical reference with regards to the dating of these Babylonian laws. Nor can you be considering that to be div of divine origin, because in every way, shape, and form, they contradict and conflict one with another. There are similarities within um, the, the the Code of Hammurabi as there are in the Ten Commandments. We can only surmise that they were somehow. Um, taken from Israel, not, not something that Israel took from the code. This is really important to be able to understand because you see, what we do see in the scriptures and in history is that it was Israel that had influence over the nations and not the other way around. It was Israel's laws, Israel's, the commandments from God that actually had influence over the known world and not the other way around. We know something historically. We know that Israel entered into captivity in Babylon in the 7th century BC. We know that the Babylonian Empire was the world empire, the biblical world empire, the first biblical world empire of the time. And it governed over 120 nations or provinces, it's referred to in the scriptures. It had all of these under their dominion. They were individual uh, groups and nations of people in those areas at the time. No less than four kings of Babylon, from Babylon, Medo, uh, Media and Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, which ended up taking over from Babylon, no less than four kings gave testimony to the God of Israel. And they set um, beside them also presidents of Israel to rule and govern with those kings over those nations, one of which was Queen Esther. We see Queen Esther was one of those that actually governed together with the king. The question that I have is with regards to the, the influence, is it just a coincidence that there arose five, the five prominent written ethical religious systems that still exist today within 50 years of the release of Israel from that captivity, traditionally around about 570 BC. Is that a coincidence? The five ethical religious systems that are still around today had their origin literally within 50 to 80 years of the release of Israel from their captivity. 
Four kings gave testimony to the truth of the God of Israel and they gave that testimony to all the nations that they governed over. Was there an influence from Israel to them? And we see this historically and you can look this up yourself. When I put the notes on, um, on, the, uh, on the website, you're going to see the footnotes where this information comes from. Buddhism is one of the first. Around the 6th century BC was, was founded. Confucianism also around the 6th century BC, 551 to 479 BC approximately. Zoroastrianism enters its written history between 600 and 500 BC. Philosophy, the philosophy was a, was a term coined by Pythagoras and that was in existence between 570 and 495 BC. It was a written ethical system of a search for wisdom. And finally, Hinduism had a massive ethical reformation and that was placed in writing in the Vedic period after 500 BC. This is an incredible coincidence. Some of these religious systems had been in place for, for over a thousand years, thousands of years earlier. They were pagan systems and yet all of these had a written ethical element that was transformed during or just after the time of Israel's captivity. Now, that's, that can't be a coincidence. Not, not when these vitally important ones that we see still around today had been employed and begun during that time. Israel's laws were certainly great and well above the nations. What I'm trying to picture for you is an understanding that Israel themselves had laws well and truly above the pagan nations at the time but also to understand that Israel saw themselves aloof. They saw themselves above the nations of the world. They had seen themselves as not, su not to be subject to the nations of the world. And this was something that God himself had made sure was addressed. And this needed to be addressed. Paul addressed this and he addressed this absolutely clearly. Because pride had entered into the hearts of the Israelites, he was also fearful that the same idea would enter into the hearts of Gentiles. And we sort of see elements of that within Christianity today also. And that is that there is a belief within the minds of Gentiles that they are not subject to the laws of the land, that they are under God's dominion and God's dominion only. Yes, no, no. God says that we are to be subject to the governing rulers of the day. When it speaks about powers, you see that it also refers to rulers. Interestingly enough, in the text, it also refers to them as ministers. Ministers. Paul preached the gospel to the known world during the despotic governance of men such as Emperor Caligula. Caligula was murdered by assassination around 41 AD. He was succeeded by Claudius. Emperor Claudius also was a despot and was murdered by poison in 54 AD. And he was succeeded finally by Emperor Nero. Nero committed suicide in 68 AD. Paul's letter to the Romans is dated in the midst of the reign of Nero, around about 58 AD. Matter of fact, it's generally believed that Paul's death came at the hands of Nero. He was, under, he was in his prison and he was under his subjection. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, he writes. 
John Chrysostom, who is an early church father, who was also well aware of the despotic persecutions that actually occurred in his grandparents' day and would also come, come again afterwards, even in his own lifetime, reflecting on chapters 12 and the opening of 13, says, For if it be right to requite those that injure us with the opposite, rendering not evil for evil but good, this is how chapter 12 finishes, much more is it our duty to obey those that are benefactors to us. And he's speaking about this, recognising that those who are benefactors to us may indeed be evil, may be unjust. But if we are, not, if we are to reward good for evil and, the, and not render evil for evil, then it follows on perfectly in this first verse to be subject unto the higher powers, regardless of who they are. So you have to be able to recognise not only what the text says, but its general context, as well as its historical placement. Paul was subject to the higher powers. But the first myth to dispel is that we are to obey everything commanded us by government. Is that true? Are we to, com- to obey everything commanded us by government? Well, clearly, no. We're going to be addressing that in a lot more detail next week. Uh, we, we have a passage in verse 2 that says, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. We're going to speak to what that means. We're going to be able to address uh, the plainness of what it actually says, but also what its limitation is. We're going to be bringing forward the biblical examples relating to petitioning of government for, our, for a redress of our grievances. Um, how was this done? How was it done biblically? How should it be done today? Um, we have that within the scriptures. But respecting government laws, we might be compelled to obey that we are to compel, be to, compelled to obey, um, there is a limitation to that obedience. And the answer to that is as simple as it is liberating, and that is simply this. We obey man's laws until man's laws disobey God, God's laws. We obey man's laws until man's laws disobeys God's laws. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, the context here is that both Peter and John are before the rulers of the people. And they're being charged by the rulers of the people. Um, they're being charged to do something which is completely contrary to the command of God. Acts chapter 4 verse 15, we take our text. And this is an example worthy of consideration. Acts chapter 4 verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right... In the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. They had given themselves into the hands of the rulers (coughs) and they made clear 
but they had no intention of obeying that which was contrary to God's laws. And so too are we. God commands we are to preach the gospel of Christ. Then we do so even when the law states otherwise. God commands us to pray for the lost. Yes, yes, we are to pray for the lost, all the lost, even if they are cross-dressing, bifocal, ambidextrous, bigoted, toothless Collingwood supporters. No matter what the law says, to the contrary, we pray that they might be delivered from that malady and turn to Christ unto salvation. We pray for them all, all people, without exception, even if the laws, and we do have a current law that's come out in Victoria to not pray for certain people. It's disgusting, despicable law. How can you obey that when God commands us otherwise? God commands preaching and we preach, nothing hindering. God commands we gather and we gather and are subject to our consciences only on the matter, not government dictates. And if the church needs to go underground to save souls, then so be it. The work that we do, we do for the Lord. We don't sound a trumpet before us. That's stupid. We don't sound a trumpet before us. What we do, we do discreetly. We do it in honour to the Lord. We are harmless and we are to remain harmless. We are undefiled and we are to remain undefiled. We know in a good conscience that what we do is the work of the Lord for the benefit of all people, not just ourselves. We teach and preach the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that without hindrance. And should they come and should they hinder us, then we deal with that as the time comes. It is God who sits on the throne, not man. God is the one that is in control, not man. God is the one who will ordain all things and all men. He turns kings' heads and their necks from one side to the other. Just as he turns the rivers, so does he turn the eyes and the ears and the hearts of men. We are to obey God in every way. We obey man's laws until man's laws disobeys God's laws. God is on the throne, not man. The next point this morning is the government's rule subject to the throne of God. Now, first verse again, it says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. It was interesting, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast by a gentleman. And in listening to this podcast, he made the statement, mind you, I agreed with pretty much everything the gentleman said, except he made this interesting statement and and he said simply that he doesn't vote. Uh, he's in America, so they have the choice and they were to register to vote um, you know, at each election. Well, once we register once, we're stuck voting for the rest of our lives. But they register to vote at each election. And he decided that he does not vote. And he does not vote because he believes that it is God that chooses those who have the rule over us. Somehow he thinks, he thinks that in everything else, he has the choice, and God is not in control or sovereign, um, but God is sovereign over governments. Uh, so he didn't want to cast a vote against God's choice of leader, which is quite interesting. In that one statement, he said two things that were wrong. The first thing that he said that was wrong was that God, is, God limits his sovereignty to that which he has stated he is sovereign. The second thing is that man has no free will. In other words, man is not 
uh, one who, uh, who can alter the course of, of things when he's commanded to do so. It's not the purpose of this message to get into the entire sovereignty of God argument. Just enough to say that the Bible teaches both that God is in perfect control of all things and that man is justly held accountable to all that he does. Isaiah presents the perfect picture of God's sovereignty. Um, it's worth turning there because we're probably going to turn there again later. Isaiah chapter 46. Have a look at Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46 and verses 9 to 11. God here is reminding Israel of his power and his authority. And he writes, he writes to them in, uh, in verse Verse nine. Matter of fact, everything from verses from chapter forty-four right to I think chapter forty-eight or fifty speaks so passionately about the sovereignty of God. Isaiah forty-six verses nine to eleven. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. There is nothing outside of God's control, but let us be also reminded with clarity that it was Jesus who is the Son of God who came to die for the sins of mankind. Man is so accountable that it took the death of Christ to cover his sin. Man is 100% accountable. God is 100% in control. We vote. We, we vote. We vote at every opportunity for the governments we desire to lead us. Those who, and I've said this before, we look for those who most emulate the character of Christ. Now, admittedly, the pool of resources that we have to look for are very, very slim indeed. And to consider one greater than the other or more in character of Christ than the other is not an easy task to do. Yet that is our responsibility. That is our responsibility as Christians. We vote for them. The Bible says the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. We take the vote and we submit ourselves to God's overruling and veto. That's what we do, and that's all we can do. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The text again is plain to see. God is the one that puts in place the powers that govern over the people, and Paul is fully aware of it. And he reminds the Gentile Christians that they are to be subject to these ruling princes in the world. And the rest is in is the is the rest of the work is in the Lord's hands and he deals with them accordingly. Paul teaches we are to respect the office, the magistrates that he himself, that God himself has created. There is no power but of God. There are no rulers that govern the nations and territories of the world but those that God has put into place. Paul reminds us directly of the reality of this. Sometimes, not often, not often, just sometimes God also has to remind the rulers that he is still on the throne. God will remind the rulers that he is still on the throne. Rulers go through their time of governance and they have a particular 
uh, view in mind, and we see this historically. We see evil rulers uh, come to an end. And the end is not a good end, oftentimes. Um, they don't often just stand down and they go away. Uh, we see God's hand is still involved there because God is the one that's demonstrated to them that he is the one that's in control. And we see this also biblically. The book of Daniel, and it's worth turning there. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we recall that the king of Babylon had a dream, and this is the first king, the one that had actually taken them, taken the people into captivity, taken the nation into captivity. And the king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he demanded... An interesting demand. He demanded that all the astrologers and the fortune tellers, all the prognosticators, all these individuals who claim to have some divine understanding would would reveal the dream to him and also interpret it. And he would say that the dream is gone from me, but you need to tell me the dream and, and the interpretation and I'll let you live. I'll reward you. But if you can't tell me the dream or the interpretation, you're going to lose your life. And they didn't like that idea. Uh, nevertheless, he made it very, very clear to them that he was aware that they would, they would um, obtain the time uh, and they prepared lying words. If they couldn't reveal the dream, then nor could he trust that they would reveal the interpretation. He was a smart guy. Daniel himself went to the Lord in prayer with regards to this and so too his three friends. And in that they set themselves and they fasted and they prayed. And in verse 19, the secret was revealed. And this is where we take our text. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel. So it's Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth with him. Now, Daniel knew that there is no power but of God. But it seemed that the king himself was yet unaware of this. You see, in spite of the revelation of that dream from Daniel to the king, and in spite of Daniel also providing the interpretation of that dream, stating that the king is the head of gold at the top, and then there's going to be other kings under him, instead of, instead of recognizing within the king's mind that it is God that sets these kings into place and forms them and shapes them, instead of the king identifying that, recognizing that simply by the interpretation, the king himself had determined that this great Babylon was something that he had created for himself, for his glory. But God had to remind him. Have a look at chapter 4. Have a look at chapter 4. There was another dream that came to the king. Now, chapter 4 is an interesting one because chapter 4 looks like, and I'm convinced is, actually written by King Nebuchadnezzar. I believe King Nebuchadnezzar wrote Daniel chapter 4, and I believe it because it's written in the first person. And I believe that it's his testimony, his education, how God had shown him that it is God that's in control, not the king, not the king. So the king has this dream and 
he explains it to Daniel and Daniel finds himself completely astonished for an hour. And the king tells him and encourages him to just reveal the dream. Don't be astonished. Don't be, don't be fearful. Just reveal the dream. And verse 17, we're given the reasoning behind what God was going to do to the king. This matter, says Daniel, is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. You recognize that? That's, that's a curiosity in itself. God sets up and gives kingdoms to whomsoever he will and he even sets up over them the basest of men. The phrase the basis of men has a literalness that just can't escape my mind today as I consider the godless leaders of both our federal and state governments today. First Kings 12.31 shows this to be a judgment upon the nation when the lowest of the people are given the highest charge over the people. When the inmates are running the asylum, you know that your nation has a problem. Next week, we're going to be considering verses 2 to 4, and we're going to identify the source of that problem. Um, and I don't want you to misinterpret what I, what I just stated. Though I truly do believe in every way that what we have leading our nation and our state at the moment are indeed the basis of men, it's not, they are not the source of our problems. The source of our problems we are going to be discovering is not the leaders, but the people. But the people. The people are the source of the problems. The leaders are simply the symptom. The people are the source. And the problem overall, over all of this is that the people will not repent. They will not turn to the Lord. And the Lord is performing a judgment upon the people. They get the just rulers. We, we've got the rulers that we justly deserve. And this is the state. This is the state. Not all. And yet at the same time, we'll, as we go through this passage, we'll see that it is indeed for the praise of them that do well, but also for the judgment of the wicked, also for the wicked. God has the ability to be able to do that and perform that work. Now, I want you to consider the king of Babylon. I want you to consider what had transpired in his life after the thought of his heart came to his lips in Daniel 4.29. And have a look at the education that was given him. This is the same education that astonished Daniel. Now it's actually come to life. Read with me verse 29 of Daniel chapter 4. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of his kingdom of Babylon. This is 12 months after Daniel revealed this, um, this vision to him. In verse 30, the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by, my, uh, by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall, they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. In the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, when he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. 
And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honoured him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom mine honour and brightness returned unto me, and my counsellors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. We recognise now how his speech is. We recognise the change. Do you see the education that God has performed? Do you see that God... Paul reminds us as Christians that we are to be subject to our leaders and to recognize and understand that God is the one that puts them and gives them in authority, that puts the powers. The powers that be are ordained of God. There is no power but of God, it says. Paul is reminding us, but God sometimes reminds the kings, reminds the kings that he is the one that is in charge. The Most High is the one that ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Beloved, there simply is no power but of God. Now, does this mean, myth number two, that God approves of all things these governments do? Simply because he's put them in there, does it mean that he, that he, that, that he approves of it all? Clearly not. Clearly not. Because just as he puts them into power, so too he also judges them. We see that even with Nebuchadnezzar in the early days when he actually came to take away the children of Israel and put them into captivity, he's referred to as a servant of God in judging Israel. But we also see later on that because of his evil and because of the nation's wickedness, they themselves were judged. So no, it doesn't stand that simply because God puts them into power that God approves of everything that they do. No, that is a myth and it doesn't follow as far as the text is concerned. God controls and he judges. And he judges according to them and according to their works. They are still held accountable. You just can't pass this. You can't miss this. Sovereignty of God, accountability of man. I'm sorry, the two work together. They seem on the, in our minds to be a contradiction, but they're not. They're a paradox we don't understand. It's simply something that we see evident in Scripture all the time. Third point is the government's ordained by the throne of God. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. In other words, God calls these men. He sends these men to govern. And he lays the pathway that they may govern. And he clothes them with the power, clothes, clothes them sorry, with the power to govern. The powers that be are ordained of God. God pre-planned and arranged all. He calls a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executes his counsel from a far country. He has spoken it. He will also bring it to pass. When God judged his own nation for their sin, he prepared over a century earlier not only the time frame of their captivity, remember, spoken about in Ezekiel, 70 years, 70 years will be ordained, 70 years will be charged for the captivity. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, my apologies, it was Jeremiah. Daniel identified it, it was Jeremiah. Jeremiah set, was told, told the um, uh, Israel it'll be 70 years, their captivity. 
And as a result of that, as a result of that, God had already planned. Not only it's going to be 70 years, so just go, build yourself houses, make yourself, you know, farms and marry and live life as you need to live life. But the captivity is going to be for 70 years. After 70 years, I am going to be preparing a prince, a king who is going to come and he is going to give a decree that you would be restored, that you are to return to build the city and to build the temple. God prepared the way for Cyrus, the king of Persia. He laid out the nations before him to open up to him the two levered gates that he might conquer Babylon. And he did so historically without a battle. And give the decree which was revealed to Daniel that started the clock for the coming Messiah that we see identified in Daniel chapter 9. There's links all the way through the Bible. It's incredible to see this. But I want you to recognize something in Isaiah 45. Over a century before Daniel, uh, before this king was born, this was recorded of him by the prophet Isaiah. He was named. His name was given. His name was already named over a century before he was born. Have a look at this in Isaiah 45 and verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open up before him the two levered gates and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden treasures of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Anybody think of that it was mother that named Cyrus, Cyrus? And it turns out it was not. God is the one who is on the throne. The passage tells us, with all clarity, that the powers that be are ordained of God. The book of Isaiah was written 150 years prior to the birth of, um, of Cyrus, or at least 100 years prior to the birth. It's, it's, it's dated reference is roughly around about 700 BC. They went into captivity roughly around about 600 um, BC. So this is the things that we know of the scriptures. God is the one who does the work. The powers that be are ordained of God. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the governor, Pilate proclaimed to Christ that he had the power to let him go or to destroy him. Pilate had that power, that ability to, to even let him go. And he's testifying to Christ, this very, very thing. And Jesus answered him this way in John 19, verse 11. He said, thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me into, unto thee hath the greater sin. Did you hear that? No power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. It is the powers that be are ordained of God. There's a reason why we are called to peace and not to rebellion, beloved. There is a reason we are commanded to faithfulness and not anarchy. God is on the throne and you are going to need to have that understanding reinforced 
again and again, especially if he should tarry any longer. If God is patient, and he is, and if God is long-suffering, and he is, and if God's desire is that none would perish but that all would come to repentance, we might see the world continue its spiral downwards. Yet we are called to faith and to watch with anticipation and to rejoice as we see the day approaching and to give that answer to all people who ask us about the hope that's in us. This is what our charge is. This is what we are to do. 1 Peter 3.15 is just a vitally important understanding. Just, just Side note for a second. It's, it's, not, it's not a big stray, but I want you to be able to understand this because of the times that we're living in at the moment. I want you to consider this. Do you know that, dispensationally speaking, and that is um, understanding the times that we're living in and understanding how the Bible frames itself out, from the beginning to the end, from Genesis through to Revelation. We can expect everything in between to also have a time reference stamp. We see this. We see this in the letter to the seven churches. We recognize that these are actual, genuine seven churches that actually existed in history at the time. And those seven churches, however, though they existed during the time frame and they had locality, physical locality, they also had a set order. And the order was there where the letter was even dropped uh, to each one of those churches where that tour was made. But also they are seven types of churches, we recognise. But not only seven types of churches, they are seven periods of church history. So what I'm saying is that there is a dispensational, there is a, a time reference stamp on Scripture all the way through it. When it comes to First Peter, it's written with a perspective that is very, very close to the day of the Lord. Okay, Through Hebrews the book of Hebrews through to the book of Revelation is written with the perspective of a readiness for the Lord's second coming. You recognize that? that? That's what it's referring to. It's notable that the time is a difficult time. Peter's epistles, both first and second Peter, speak of sufferings on that day and the sufferings of that day. But Peter's admonition specifically toward uh, Christians is to be demonstrating hope in the Christian which contrasts the difficulty that people are experiencing in the world. It's not, it's not something that's it's not coincidental, beloved. While the world is turning itself inside out, while the world is reeling to and fro like a drunkard, while people within the world are filled with anxieties and with fears, Peter is telling us that there needs to be an evident hope within us that we are demonstrating to the world, that they'd be asking questions, questions like, why are you at peace at such a time as this? Where does your comfort come from while the world is in such disarray? Why have you such hope when so many feel that hope is lost? And it's not difficult to look at the world today. America was founded because hope was lost in the United Kingdom. America was, had the pilgrims travel to the United States because of the government, government of the United Kingdom at the time was despotical against Christians. And the pilgrims made their way and started a new land and a new faith and a new nation based on Christian principles. And they had the freedom to worship God with all freedom without persecution. That's why they left the UK. Where are you going to go now? 
the entire world is, in a way, a, you can't, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. People are fleeing Victoria at the moment, but it's happening in Victoria is eventually going to happen elsewhere. So Peter is trying to encourage us. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 1 Peter 3.15 Beloved, God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne and we are perfectly free both to live and to die for the Lord. Our life is in his hands. Our days are his. Our hope is in him. It's in him. Reveal the hope that you have to the world during times like this and know of a certainty that God is indeed still on the throne. And so the powers that be are ordained of God. And we've got to recognise that within the nation that we're living in, with the people that we're living in. The last point is that God is still on the throne. Psalm 75 verses 6 to 7 says this, For the promotion, for promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. God is the one on the throne. And throughout the Bible, we see his listening ear as he hears the petitions of his people for a redress of grievances. From the time of Moses through the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Esther and the Chronicles and again and again, we see passages where the people petition the Lord to deal with the despots who govern them and he hears them. He hears them. But we also see times when we need to endure the flame there are times when we are to be trusting that the lord will deliver us and if he would not yet deliver us we would still remain faithful and just trust in the lord and endure the difficulty to come recognizing that there is a purpose for the trials that we endure recognizing that there's a reason for going through what we go through and we do so faithfully trusting that the lord is there present when it comes to matters of um so there are going to be things there are going to be decisions that you are going to be making that are going to require faith where you see laws and decrees of government going completely continually against what the scriptures teach with respect to how you are to live your life and a compelling of a change within your life to suit that which government has decreed as just and good, but where God sees as evil, you need to make those decisions. You need to make those decisions according to what you see the Lord speak of. And you need to be comfortable with the consequences of them. When it comes to matters of preference, however, when it comes to those things that today burden you, that you don't wish to partake in, you have your choices which you are free to make. You've got your choices that you're free to make. Some of those choices, like Paul's choice to return to Jerusalem, even knowing that he is going to be taken and imprisoned, will have consequences. But don't underestimate the Lord working through those consequences. Be faithful first to the Lord. Trust in him first. Trust in him first when it comes to those things. And let him deal with those consequences. 
In this present evil day, people are soon going to be presented with choices. Please, settle it now in your minds how you will respond and give some consideration as to all your options moving forward. You remember, you remember the laws that were decreed during the time of Daniel when his three friends were were to bow down and worship the golden image and they said to the king, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. Why aren't they careful? Why aren't they worried? Well, they're not worried simply because they've already determined within their hearts that they will not fall down and worship it and they've considered the consequences. If it is for the Lord to deliver us, he'll deliver us. But if it's not for the Lord to deliver us, nevertheless, know that we will not bow down and worship the idol. They were prepared even unto death with regards to this because they did not want to do that which they knew God did not want them to do. They obeyed God. That's your choices. That's your choices. Well, that's the the extreme end of your choices. That's the extreme end of your choices. Please also, don't let your emotions drive your logic. There's a lot of us that have got a lot of pride with regards to the stuff that's going on. And we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to submit ourselves to government. And we need to make sure that it's not our emotions that drive our logic. We are to be seen as blameless, undefiled, without harm within the world, and to have no cost against government, no cost against them at all. We are privileged to live here, and this is our home for the time being, but we're not actually home yet. This is a temporary residence. So, beloved, make sure you're using logic to correct and address and adjust your emotions. You can do that. Not the other way around. Don't let emotions drive you. Use logic, the, the, the reasonable considerations of that which is right in God's eyes. You let that correct your emotions. Submit yourselves to God's word and don't go beyond it for the sake of stubborn pride. Please remember, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. There's certain things that I've already decided for myself. I'm not deceived. And I've considered the costs and I'm going to be trusting in the Lord. But there are some personal things that are not as important to me, which I will eventually give way to, that I don't have a a long-term concern over should push come to shove. But as for my government, government, um, I will petition them and I will encourage others to do so also because we have an opportunity to be able to do this. But I've got no interest whatsoever in rebelling against our government. I will obey them for as long as my conscience testifies that I'm being faithful to the Lord. But I will not obey beyond that. And I rest in Christ for the outcome. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. God is still on the throne. That's why we are to live without spot in the present world. We are to be seen as peaceable people, subject to our government, just as Jesus Christ was to Pilate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for this day. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity of this message and of this sermon. And I pray, dear Lord, that it would do its work within the hearts of many people. Those who would hear, dear Lord, would trust in you and rejoice, resting in you and glorifying God for the outcome. 
Pray, dear Father, you continue to be with them, strengthen them, encourage them, help them live, dear Lord, with the joy and the hope that they have set before them and glorify your name, I pray, until, dear Lord, you indeed come. We thank you for Jesus' wonderful words. We thank you for this time. Amen. God bless you. Lord be with you. He's coming soon. Maranatha. God bless.